0: The Daily Rios Digest, July 17th, 2021.
1: Good morning, citizens. Bacon to grass of bananas.
0: So, my first segment here was going to be about some news that spilled prior to Monday, July 12th as a way to catch listeners up on anything that may have dropped in case you aren't the type of person that scours the internet or social media for comic book news like some of us do. The news I'm going to mention happened after Monday, so one of the benefits of this digest format is that I can be modular, which means I can record on a daily basis, but it doesn't always have to be put together chronologically. I can mix and match, I can flip the segments to make the episode flow better, or just to order things in a way uh, that will probably only make sense to myself. Um, Kind of bucking my own format here a little for the second digest. So anyway, uh, I was keeping an eye out for some news, and then something dropped midweek of this week, and I wanted to kind of kick things off uh, with this bit of news for this second digest. Through his blog, Chris Pitzer announced that he would be closing At House Books with their 100th publication, Grass of Parnassus by Catherine and Stuart Eminen, which is due out in September. At House Books is a boutique publisher that's been around since 2002 with titles such as Skyscrapers of the Midwest by Joshua Cotter, Street Angel by Maruka and Roog, Mesmo Delivery by Grandpa Jamie Tanner's The The Aviary, Tom Scioli's American Barbarian, Issues of Johnny Hero by Fred Chow, and so many others. Chris was a publisher who was very supportive of podcasting in the early days, and made a few stops onto the CGS show uh, or we would do our best to try to promote any new books that were coming out through Ad House. Chris also made the five hour trip for our very first CGS Super Show in 2008. Uh, I read one of uh, his blog posts about the show and he seemed to have a really good time. Um, He's just a good guy and someone who really is all about comics. So um, I even like to think that there's still an ad house magnet attached to one of the large storage units at the Expo Center where we held uh, the super shows. So it was always nice to come back and go, oh, there it is still there. So why close ad house? I will post the link to the blog so you can read the uh, post uh, for yourself. Chris lays out a few factors such as age and sales, new platforms like Kickstarter, the pandemic, other reasons. Uh, But he does mention that there will be uh, possibly another project released in October. And even though there are a few more on the back burner, he's not quite sure yet if those will come to fruition. At this point throughout 2022, instead of being a publisher, he's going to change things to be a dealer so that he can sell. product that he has. So if you are someone who uh, you have a fairly good-sized convention that you go to, why not try to contact those organizers and say, hey, why don't you invite Chris from Ad House Books uh, so that he can, you know, spread the good word of Ad House. And by all means, go to their website. I will put a link on in the show notes go to their website, order some of their books. I'm sure you, you'll you find something uh, that you'll like there, or you might recognize a creator or two. Um, just a, a really... I feel like, the, you know, this is the kind of publisher you want to support. So uh, please, by all means, check, check them out at House Books. And just one other little bit of news here. July 12th is the birthday for artist-creator Phil Jimenez. Phil Jimenez is an artist that I came to recognize during the 90s, and he is a spiritual successor to an artist like George Perez. Um, You might recognize his name um, from the covers that he's currently doing for Marvel's uh, Pride Month, and he was the writer-artist on early issues of Superwoman for the DC Rebirth. He had a lengthy run on Wonder Woman, uh, was the artist on Infinite Crisis. I believe he did a few issues of Angela um, from Marvel, the, uh, what was it called, um, Angela Asgard's Assassin. Uh, covers, pinups, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, just a, an amazing artist, um, and, and is currently working on Historia, a series written by Kelly Sue DeConnick with art by Phil Jimenez for DC's Black Label, uh, Historia, the Amazons, which is uh, supposed to be nine issues uh, detailing the history of the Amazons and of Queen Hippolyta and Wonder Woman. Uh, That is quite a project. I am definitely looking forward to it. Phil Jimenez also did a pretty great run on The Invisibles Volume 2 with Grant Morrison, also did some issues of Grant Morrison's New X-Men. So, uh, you know, a creator that has quickly rose to become one of my favorite artists over the many, many years. It's probably no strange reason why I would gravitate to, to creators like George Perez, and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, and Ernie Colon, and Phil Jimenez. Uh, because they are Hispanic creators, um, Phil Jimenez is half Irish and half Mexican, uh, and feels like from the interviews that I read, he he thinks about his uh, Latino has, Hispanic heritage much in the same way that I do. That um, there are far better um, <laughs> representatives of, of uh, you know of of be of what it means to be a Latino. Um, you know certainly. Uh, This is something that um, I've always thought about. thought about, obviously, all my life, but, you know, I don't really necessarily speak the language that well, and um, growing up, um, I wasn't necessarily immersed in the culture, and it sounds like that's something that also was part of Phil Jimenez's uh, upbringing as well. So I really need to do a spotlight on Phil Jimenez, perhaps over on the Tower podcast, which is a podcast that I do. On all things Titans uh, because he has quite a history with the Titans uh, but it is his birthday so if anybody else shares a July 12th birthday uh, you share it with mr. Phil Jimenez I- TV Tuesday. I don't know if anybody even recognizes that that little bit of intro music there. So that is the intro music for Full Bloom, which is a two-season reality competition show on HBO, and it's all about florists. Floristry, horticulture, uh, mostly about florists. Um, it's a show that we started to watch because... Uh, so, I don't know if I've ever talked about this, my sister owns a flower shop. She's owned a flower shop since the mid-80s, since I was like 14, 15 years old. And at one point had two two stores running at the same time. Um, and I think I joked one time and said, hey, you should do kind of like a competition, a challenge. Uh, like they've been doing a lot in local cities. Uh, mostly with, like, dancing with the local stars or things like that. You know, do some kind of um, competition, maybe to help uh, new and -and up-and-coming florists or people who work in the flower industry or landscaping or whatever. And it was kind of like a joke, sort of, Um, and this was a couple weeks ago. So then I did a random search. Sure enough, there is a uh, florist reality show, which I didn't know about, called Full Bloom. And it's on HBO Max, like I said, two seasons. So we decided to watch the show. And uh, I am not a big reality TV watcher at all, uh, especially when it comes to competition shows because they can be quite negative and the drama is ramped up because of the editing. You know, I was there for the very first season of MTV's Real World when nobody knew what to expect with that kind of show. Now, of course, there was some editing involved in that as well. But um, speaking of which, I, I really want to watch that reunion show that they did with that first cast because I loved that first cast. And even though I started to watch the second and third seasons, they just weren't the same. So I'm not a big fan of reality shows. I watch some... Dance-oriented ones, but again, if it starts to get too dramatic, they sort of lose me. Full Bloom feels very similar to uh, Sci-Fi's Face Off, which was which was a show uh, that was all about special effects and makeup and TV makeup, movie makeup, and it showed real artistry. And it was about the work, and you learned some things along the way. So that's what I liked about this show. It's a really good competition show. Not a lot of negative aspects to it. The people are nice. They're supportive. Uh, it's a celebration of this particular art, and you know it means something uh, close to home because of my sister's artistry. Uh, you know, with being a florist, everyone in my family works in some kind of art or at least had some experience, whether it was at one point uh, an older brother who worked on restoring cars. My sister's a florist. I'm in theater and arts education. My younger sister is in dance. My one other younger sister uh, used to be able, used to be a really good artist, you know. Um, My younger brother had uh, experience with the art. So we all That was something that was important from my mom. You know, she wanted to make sure that we all had some of that culture, whether it was through music, dance, art, whatever. So, watching this show was a lot of fun because we could really look at what they were doing, and uh, she obviously knew every single flower that was shown, and would often make comments about certain arrangements, and then the judges on the show would make the same comments, you know I've been around the flower business and uh have I've worked uh my sister's stores you know as a as a driver as a phone person you know running one of the stores during summers um uh so it was kind of nice to know that I could still you know talk about this show and know a little bit uh about what I was talking about so it just was really a, if you like competition shows here's one that I think you you might really like because it really is about the craft and the artwork, and um, it connects a little bit to what I was saying last digest about art being all around you whether you see it or not. And uh, you know she learned some things even though she's been in the business so long. She there's a couple things that uh, she walked away. She said she wants to watch it again so that she could maybe pick up on some other things. It just was a really pleasant show to watch. So, check it out Full Bloom HBO Max. The other thing that I watched, which is also on HBO Max, one of really one of the best streaming services. Um I did watch, even though I don't like to watch trailers, I did watch the season 3 trailer for Titans, which is coming out in August. Um so this, if if I had to kind of talk about the trailer, it looks like, perhaps, for Season 3 we're going to get one focus, one major story, which is Nightwing and the Titans going up against Red Hood. There seems to be a side story with Blackfire and Raven, a few nods to the Death in the Family storyline, where Jason Todd was quote-unquote killed by the Joker, Um, using a crowbar, but the Scarecrow is also involved in this season in a role that feels like Hannibal Lecter from Silence of the Lambs. So maybe some of the things that we saw, such as Jason Todd being beaten by crowbar, and some things with um, Oracle, Barbara Gordon, who is new in this season. I don't know if she's called Oracle, but also some things with Bruce Wayne. Maybe those are fear elements from the Scarecrow. Um, there also, unfortunately, seemed to be some back and forth between Hawk and Dove, which I'm like, come on. Uh, I was over that by season one. I hope they don't continue that with season three. So I'm going to do an episode review of the first episode on the Tower. After that, I will see. I I struggle with the idea of doing podcasts on each episode because... It was really hard for season two because the, I, the show just isn't living up to what I want it to be, but we'll see. Maybe they learned some things from the first two seasons and we'll get a better show with season three. So that'll start in August.
1: In 2014, two comic fans joined forces to do a Doom Patrol podcast. As there was no Doom Patrol comic series at the time, they called it Waiting for Doom. That was us, me Mike and him Paul. In 2016, DC Comics became fearful of the power of Waiting for Doom and sought to appease us by bringing the comic back. Uh, That's not exactly how it went. In 2018, terrified of the sheer horde organising power of Waiting for Doom, DC Universe announced a Doom Patrol TV show, I think they were planning that without us. In 2019, they again brought back the Doom Patrol comic, hoping we would not smite them. Uh, This makes no sense. In 2021, they realised we were the most unstoppable force in existence and released the Doom Patrol movie. Uh, This is pure fantasy now. 2022, a terrified Motion Picture Academy awarded the Doom Patrol movie every single Oscar, including Best Documentary and Foreign Language Film. That, that's enough, Paul. Look, we just love the Doom Patrol and have fun talking about them. You can find us on all podcast places and now Spotify. Yep. And check out our website, WaitingForDoom.com, or we will wipe you out, all of you.
0: New Comics Wednesday. Okay, so this Wednesday segment uh, you know, might have a little bit of, uh, some storm background noise, (laughs) you know, that's the thing about recording, right? You just, sometimes you get a whim to record and you just never know what's going to happen in the background here in suburbia. So for this segment, um, I don't have any review like I did for the last, the first digest. So I thought, why not talk about some books really quickly uh, that came out on Wednesday, July 14th that you might be interested in. And then I have some upcoming DC projects that you might be interested in as well. So first up, David Peterson is returning to the world of Mouse Guard with Mouse Guard, The Owl-Hen Caregiver, and Other Tales. This is from Boom Studios. This is a self-contained story with three uh, new stories going back into the world of Mouse Guard. Pretty awesome. We haven't had a new Mouse Guard project in a while. There's also new work by Dave McKean from Dark Horse called Raptor, a Sokol graphic novel. This is $29.99. The blurb here is, uh, Raptor flickers between two worlds, a feudal fantastical landscape where he must hunt prey to survive, and Wales in the late 1800s, where a writer of supernatural tales mourns the passing of his young wife. He exists between two states, the human and the hawk. He lives in the twilight between truth and lies, life and death, reality, and the imagination. And if you know anything about Dave McKean's work, you have to imagine that it's going to at least be visually stunning. So, we shall see. From Lev Gleason, we have Lev Gleason Presents Number One and Two. This is an anthology series, oversized for each issue, containing two new stories and also reprinting one uh, Lev Gleason Comic House um, Golden Age story or older story with characters such as Silver Streak, Freelance, Captain Canuck. Um, and creators such as Keith Champagne and Philippe Cunhao, Adrian Benson, Juan Samu. Um, I'm not super familiar with these characters. I'm not super familiar with this, uh, publishing house. Um, but I thought, you know what, why not try to give, try to give these a try, um, and see, see how it, see how it works. You know, one of the characters is the golden age daredevil. Um, you know, I thought, Yeah. This is kind of cool. They're each $9.99. Everybody getting in on the sort of compendium thing, kind of like DC's Walmart books, which is smart, you know, especially for a publisher like this. Maybe they can't hold up an entire publishing line, but they can do anthologies, and they can do, uh, you know, kind of like a compendium series. So check those out. And then from Pantheon Books, we have Seek. You, a journey through American loneliness by Kristen Ratke, and the blurb here: There is a silent epidemic in America—loneliness, shameful to talk about and often misunderstood. Loneliness, loneliness is everywhere, from the most major of metropolises to the smallest of towns. In Seek You, Ratke's wide-ranging exploration of our inner lives and public selves, digs into the ways in which we attempt to feel closer to one another. And the distance that remains through the lenses of gender violence technology and art radke ushers us through a history of loneliness and longing and shares what feels impossible to share now when i saw this in previews a while back i thought okay wow is this timely right especially because of the pandemic uh i thought okay let's see what this is going to be like i was texting mr Mr. phil who uh, has already started to read this and where I guess originally we thought it was going to be more of like a narrative story. He says it's a little bit more of like a a, a illustrated uh, research project, but yet he finds it very fascinating. And it means something to everything that's going on right now. So I'm really looking forward to reading that. And then, like I said, there's a a bunch of new projects that are being uh, solicited through DC. They're really getting in on this whole, uh, maxi series, mini series, limited series format, you know, not a lot of series upcoming new series coming out, but a lot of mini series. So, uh, two of them are coming out this October task force Z and DC versus vampires. Now, again, projects that probably aren't usually something that I look forward to, but I was like, okay. If it's a mini-series, if it's a maxi-series, I could maybe get into that. And actually, now that I look at it, Task Force Z might be a series. Um, Task Force Z is basically, uh, there's an attack on Arkham Asylum. All these villains are killed, but then they're brought back to life. And then they're brought together under Red Hood, Jason Todd, to figure out what the heck is going on now. I don't think this is in continuity. I think it's just sort of like a celebration of October. Um, perhaps it's something that is familiar to like, de- uh, similar to Deceased, you know, where it's just, they're just trying to tell a story. Now, when you have a name like Task Force Z, you have to think about Task Force X and the Suicide Squad. So it seems like maybe there's the same setup. But then you put the letter Z, and so it makes me think of World War Z and zombies and horror. So, we shall see. Uh, Task Force Z is written by Matthew Rosenberg with art by Eddie Barrows and Eber Ferreira. Uh, DC vs. Vampires is outside of the normal continuity. Uh, It is 12 issues and is also by Rosenberg with James Tynan IV. It's a 12-issue maxi-series, as I said, outside of continuity. This features Batman and Green Arrow, and the rest of the Justice League up against a secret army of vampires. Straightforward, right? (laughs) This looks to be, uh, let's see, artwork by Otto Schmidt, I believe. So uh, if that is your bag, there you go. Two uh, quote-unquote horror titles coming out from DC. Over in the Wonder Woman universe, we have Nubia and the Amazons, a six-issue series launching this fall by Stephanie Williams, Vida Ayala, and art by Alitha Martínez and Mark Morales. This is following up the events of Infinite Frontier Number 0. She also recently showed up in Nubia, The Real One by L.O. L. McKinney and Robin Smith, which was one of DC's uh, original graphic novels. This was back in the spring. Uh, a holdover to what they used to call DC Zoom or DC Inc., the young... Uh, young adult line, but now they don't label it anything, even though I still call it DC Zoom or DC Inc. So uh, this character getting uh, her own book for the first time. Her own comic, I should say. And then we also have this this kind of lit Twitter on fire. Uh, Tom King and Greg Smallwood on the human target with a, with an appearance by Justice League International. This is a 12-issue limited series starting in November from Black Label. Christopher Chance has had a remarkable career until his latest case, protecting Lex Luthor, goes sideways. An assassination attempt Chance didn't see coming leaves him vulnerable and left trying to solve his own murder, as he has 12 days to discover just who in the DCU hated Luthor enough to want him dead. This feels like this is something right up Tom King's alley and also Greg Smallwood too when you look at the artwork and you see the Justice League International and you have Batman and Guy Gardner and Ice and Fire and Rocket Red and Blue Beetle Uh, and you have Booster Gold and Nort of all people which is like amazing and on Twitter. They dropped some artwork by Greg Smallwood on, uh, of the Justice League International, and Kevin Maguire actually saw it and said, Oh, wow, this is really cool. Wish I could have been a part of it. And of course, Tom King was like, Uh, you would have wanted to be a part of it? <laughs> and Kevin McGuire was like, Sure, yeah, why not? But then I think he also joked that, you know, his deadlines are terrible. So take a look for that. Human Target an- looks to be another fantastic series by Mr. Tom King. And then something I just discovered recently, uh, this is called Pulp Empire, The Secret History of Comic Book Imperialism by Paul S. Hirsch. This is from University of Chicago Press Books. Apparently, it was released uh, on July 12th. You can get it as uh, a print copy or as digital from their website. It's written by Paul S. Hirsch, and it attempts to uncover the gripping untold story of how the U.S. government both attacked and appropriated comic books to help wage World War II and the Cold War, promote official and clandestine foreign policy, and deflect global critiques of American racism. This book will weave together a wealth of previously classified material, including secret wartime records, official legislative documents, And caches of personal papers, and his book explores the uneasy contradiction of how comics were both vital expressions of American freedom and unsettling glimpses into the national id, scourged and repressed on the one hand and deployed as official propaganda on the other. Some of the chapters here are Donald Duck's Atom Bomb, The Devil's Ally, American Civilization Means, Airstrips, and Comic Strips, Thor battles the Viet Cong, etc. So as far as research goes, this looks to be uh, to, looks to be an interesting read. I enjoy books like this, so take a look out for Pulp Empire.
1: If you're a Marvel fan, I want to tell you about my podcast, X-Men Unraveled. Each episode, I cover the X-Men comics in chronological order. From ancient Egypt to World War II and beyond, the famous mutants have a long and storied history. No prior comic book knowledge is necessary. In each episode, I break down a storyline straight from the comics to walk you through the X-Men universe and introduce each of the characters. So check out X-Men Unraveled wherever you get your podcasts.
0: The Daily Reads Thursday. I think I may have mentioned in a previous episode uh, that I've been reading Chris Claremont's and Dave Cockrum and Len Wein. Uh, I've been reading their X-Men run from Giant Size X-Men 1, uh, and I'm up to right near where John Byrne is ready to take over Art Duties. This is a series, this is a run that I have not read before. I've read The Dark Phoenix Saga in trade, I've read uh, Days of Future Past, I've read those two issues, and I might have read a few scattered other issues here and there, but I have not I've not gone back to the beginning and read everything. Um, I have not read any of the Paul Smith stuff. My X-Men started with Uncanny X-Men 180 during the John Romita Jr. years. This was right before they went to Secret Wars, right after they went came back from Secret Wars. The introduction, I was reading New, New Mutants at the time as well, the, the whole introduction of Rachel Summers. So all of this early stuff... Completely new to me. Now, I'm reading it because I'm also listening to older episodes of the Uncanny X-Cast, and um, it's allowing me to not only read all of this Bronze Age X-Men stuff, but then I also decided, oh yeah, I've never finished Joss Whedon and John Cassidy's Astonishing X-Men, so I was also reading that, which the Uncanny X-Cast was covering as well. So in their retro reviews, they have, um, uh, where I'm listening uh, to these episodes, they've gotten to Giant Size X-Men, so I'm able to read along. Now they do anywhere from like three to five issues an episode, but um, I'm trying to take my time and really see how the X-Men have developed. There are obviously a ton of X-Men podcasts, and I just played a promo for a, a, a more recent one that just started. So um, I don't really have it in me to do episode by episode or issue by issue. I think this franchise is well covered, but I am reading and taking a lot of notes, and I thought, you know what, this is, the great, this is a great format to dump some of these ideas, um, because I don't have to get back to it week to week. I can read a bunch of issues and then just wait to talk about it. So one of the larger points, let's see, so I'm only going to talk about Giant Size X-Men number one through X-Men 97. Now, I've read beyond that, but I decided to go back again uh, because I I stopped reading, so I was like, let me go back and really take some notes and and remember what the heck I read. So I'm only reading a handful of issues here. Now, uh, a a couple of larger thoughts that I'm not exactly certain I've, I've heard on other podcasts, but maybe I did. I think in my mind, because the Claremont Byrne run is so well respected and it is an inspiration to so many creators, including a lot of the image creators, um, I guess I always took it for granted that the Dave Cockrum run is also incredibly influential. Not only because he helped to co-create a lot of these characters, but the visual language of the X-Men where I guess I used to think Byrne was the one that created uh, the whole visual visual characteristics of a lot of these characters. No, it, it, it really started with Cockrum, to the point that there are some panels and there are some sequences that I'm like, wait a minute, that's how John Byrne would draw it. Wait a minute, that's how John Byrne would draw the mask. Wait a minute, that's how John Byrne would do the powers. So you come to realize, oh... Byrne was just really smart to not be so uh, different from what Cochran was doing in, in terms of little things here and there. I'm not necessarily talking about panel layout, I'm not talking about sequential, I'm just talking about little moments in time. For instance, when when you see two characters arguing with each other, when you see Storm flying or using her powers. So I'm trying to pull a few panels here and there. And I'm just putting them aside so that when I get to the John Byrne stuff, I can go, yep, there it is. There's the connection. Now, it's a no brainer that Dave Cockrum loved Nightcrawler, and you can see that in these episodes or in these issues. Um, One of the aspects with Nightcrawler that I don't think I've ever really read before is that there's a lot of narration where he howls or where he laughs, and it sounds like almost animalistic. And I love that Claremont is really kind of like focus on just not only is he different in appearance, but he's also different in his persona. And I dig that. You know, this is a guy that looks like a devil. You know, he's got a tail and he's got three fingers and he should be different. His mannerisms should be different. So I totally love that. One of the other larger thoughts is because this was coming out bi-monthly, Uh, coming off of giant size, you know, because it wasn't a rating success right away. Claremont is pretty smart about also jumping the time within the story, within the comic. So there are several scenes where uh, the X-Men are training under Cyclops in the danger room, and one of the narrations would say, you know, weeks go by. And then there is uh, a sequence with Havok and Polaris, who gets named in one of these issues for the first time, Polaris, um, where the narration says, you know, they've been away for six months. So it feels like Claremont is almost trying to hit some of the same publishing time, but then it allows this team to gel. It, it allows them to get closer together. Uh, and the, the while some of the issues might connect back to back, There might be an issue that takes place weeks later, months later, you know? So I love that. I think that's great. It allows for a lot of untold stories as these characters are growing, and um, I just think it's cool. I think it's cool when I come across it. I'm also really digging that I'm able to get some really cool trivia out of a lot of these early issues, you know, to really test X-Men fans. (laughs) I talked about how I would love to do a trivia episode one day soon on Zoom, and I can be real targeted in my questioning. So if I ever want to do like a larger X-Men universe type trivia, you can bet there's going to be questions from these early episodes. From Giant Size, it's really interesting to see where a lot of these characters come from, how how Storm was treated before she became an X-Men, um, things going on with Wild uh, Wolverine how he is a government stooge at this point. Um, you can see early seeds for Weapon X and the Weapon X program. Stuff going on with Colossus. And, of course, all the personality clashes with Thunder, Thunderbird and uh, Sunfire. And that they go up against Krakoa, the Living Island, which, you know, in the X-Men books right now, it's all about Krakoa. So that's, that's a, a very compelling uh, comparison between the older stuff and the newer stuff. In X-Men 94, which is when Claremont actually joins the book officially in the title, uh, along with Len Wein as plotter, we get some setup here, you know, about um, with Sunfire leaving the team, Wolverine and Thunderbird sort of take over, the, the, being the instigators, clashing with Cyclops. There's a lot of high drama uh, especially with, like, Cyclops and his vision, um, Cyclops's urgency to make them a team. And then, uh, so these first two issues, 94 and 95, they're going up against Nefaria, and it ends with the death of Thunderbird, right? Like, that's a pretty classic um, uh, story point there. Also in these early stories, what you start to see is this kind of, like, crush that Colossus has on Aurora. He's always trying to defend her and rescue her. And uh, there's a little bit of urgency on her end as well, but it's mostly from Colossus's point of view, but that's something that obviously doesn't stick in ninety six, we get the first appearance of Moira McTaggart. We get the uh, first rumblings, really of um mutant hatred with Stephen Lang. The x-men battle uh Kirok, a child of the nagari in a in a situation that's not even explained like why is there this random totem that's just out in the woods somewhere and cyclops because he's being cyclops is firing off his um, powers you know he, he he blames himself about the death of thunderbird and he goes wild, and that destroys the totem, and it frees this demon. And it's like, where? Why was that totem there to begin with? You know, none of it is really explained. We get the first appearance of Wolverine going berserk, and he mentions that you know he had ten years of psycho training, ten years of hypnotism, drug therapy, even prayer. Nothing works. He's still an animal. So now both Thund- Thunderbird and Sunfire are gone from the group, and Wolverine takes over. As kind of like the, the bad boy. And then with 97, Xavier is starting to have these dreams of like intergalactic war. And it's the Shiar. Lalandra is coming, right? And Eric the Red shows up in this issue. Havoc and, and Polaris uh, are under the sway of Eric the Red. This is a really good issue. Like they get attacked by Havoc and Polaris. They're in the middle of an airfield because um, Professor X is going on a vacation. A lot of high drama, this great moment where Aurora just powers up and goes off on Polaris. Some beautifully drawn pages by Dave Cockrum. Um, We get Wolverine just, you know, digging at Cyclops for for his actions as leader, and Scott punches him for the first time. So, you know, again, a lot of buildup of what we, of what I just took for granted is, is finding Uh, it's first breath here in these early issues. Now Banshee is also part of the team at this point, but I actually like when he's not around. (laughs) Um, He's okay. He's okay. He's older than everybody else, as he makes mention every now and then. Um, But when he's not in the book, it makes me feel like, okay, this is the X-Men that I know. So we have a few subplots. We have some, you know, early stories that have a lot of potential. And I know that there's some great things coming, so I will continue to talk about the Uncanny X-Men as I read more issues. Since I'm not really going through a lot of my notes with this uh, X-Men read, what I'll do is I'll dump the notes, um, I guess in the show notes, or maybe as a separate page on the Daily Rios website, like I'm doing with the Smallville episodes. So that way, if you want to um, look at some of the other thoughts that I have, uh, you can do that for sale Friday. All right, for this last segment here on the Daily Reels Digest number two, I just want to go through a couple of things that I posted on um, the website under the for sale sticky post. Uh, If you don't know, I am trying to sell off uh, a lot of my collection. I have about 35 plus long boxes and a about seven short boxes, and um, I'm not moving anytime soon, but I really don't want to move these boxes again because I'm fairly certain I almost broke my back the last time I did it. And um, I have a lot. I have a lot that I am willing to to part with cheaply. You know, I'm pricing these to move, and there have been people that have reached out, and I've sold a couple things, which is awesome, and I'd like to sell more. And uh, you know, I package well. You can trust that the books are going to arrive to you safely, as long as the post office doesn't do anything uh, silly. Um, I try to use media mail to keep things cheap, and um, I'm um, I don't know. I mean, I may try to dump some of this on eBay or on Macari, or find uh, someone local that just wants to buy a lot of the stuff that isn't worth anything cheaply. You know, and I'll just unload a bunch of stuff, but. Um, I'm trying to move paper and it's a good way to support the podcast if that's something you're interested in. Um, and then that way you don't have to sign up for like a Patreon or anything like that, you'll get something in return. So, so here are a few things, um, you can go to the website and look at many more. So for instance, uh, for DC, I have 12 issues of the most recent Batman and the Outsiders. I have Cave Carson has a Cybernetic Eye Volume 1, all 12 issues. Day Tripper 1 through 12, or 1 through 10, I should say, from Vertigo back in 2010. I think it was a 10 issue miniseries. Whatever it is, I have all of them. And that's by Moon and Ba. From Marvel, I have a few Black Panther trades. I have the Captain America Falcon, Christopher Priest trade, uh, Hercules miniseries by Bob Layton, Marvel's Annotated that was a recent miniseries, Union Jack, four issues from 2006, and many, many other Marvel titles. In the indie section, I have things like the first three issues of Jonathan Hickman's Decorum, uh, Huck, and I Kill Giants, also from Image, Four Kids Walk Into a Bank, and Clandestino from Black Mask, Scott Pilgrim, Color Edition, Hardcover, Volume 1, John Burns Next Men, the IDW nine-issue run, uh, Smacks by Alan Moore, the five issue series, Shudder, I have 12 issues of that. And like I said, so much more. Now, there's stuff listed on the website, but then I also have um, spreadsheets of Marvel, DC, and indie. Uh, some of the things that I've listed here are mini series or collections or trades, but I have a ton of single issues that if you just want to look at and, like, yeah, I want that issue, I want that issue, I want that, you know. You never know what you might find. So if you want those sheets, I will send those to you. Or by all means, send me your want list and maybe whatever's on your want list I might have. So if you're somebody that somebody that still wants paper and still wants to buy comics, physical comics, uh, you know, help me out. <laughs> That'll be great and I can help you out. Well, lastly here, just want to thank everybody who reached out about the first Daily Rios Digest who commented or retweeted or sent me an email. uh, Really just uh, super appreciative. I apologize, apologize if I miss anyone. Kurt M. emailed and said, As a listener, I've always enjoyed the year one vibe, but wished they were longer. The digest is the proverbial best of both worlds, which is an awesome comment. And then people like Chris, Charlton Hero, Corwin of Earth's Mightiest Podcast, Stephen Orr of Just Another Fanboy, Eric, my co-host of the Legion Project, and and others. Again, I apologize for not listing everybody. I will do better. Um, I I really like this format. I don't have to record. I don't have to release daily. I can just you know compile all of these segments. It doesn't take me long on a Saturday to put it all together. And then I can put some promos out there. So again, if you're a podcaster, send me your promos. Also, let me know which segments are to your liking, especially as we get a few more digests here and there. Uh, let me know if there's a subject you want me to return to, or if there's a subject that you want me to uh, dig a little deeper into. I know one of the things is uh, Chris Charlton Hero wants me to get back to talking about Walking Dead, You know, which I'll do that as I watch more episodes for season 10, um, as we get closer and closer to the final season, And then as I start to read the books, I will definitely um, talk more about Walking Dead. Um, I know in the first digest, I mentioned that um, in some of the segments, I said, okay, here's what I will do in the future. I don't always necessarily mean that I'll get to it the next digest, you know, like I want to do a discussion on Invincible. Well, it's going to take me some time to actually read it and then watch it. for new comic reviews, you know, I have to read something first before I can actually talk about it. So, when I do, I'll just throw it in. As I said, these digests are just a hodgepodge of topics. Um, I'm keeping a list of topics, but I never know which one I'm actually going to get to until the day arrives and I go, "Yeah, I kind of feel like talking about that." So, let me know what you think. Peter at thedailyrios.com. Go to the website thedailyrios.com. Go to the Instagram thedailyrios or follow me on Twitter, Peter J. Rios. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 508 for Saturday, July 17th. Talk to you soon. It was supposed to be a quarterly because Marvel wasn't sure it would sell. After Dave had started working on the second issue, the editorial decision came down to make the book a bi-monthly.
1: And X-Men, I really didn't intend to give up initially.
0: But he didn't have time to do... A bi monthly X Men.
1: And when I said, gee, I don't know, should I give up the X Men? Should I keep it? Chris just sort of
0: sat there going, I'll take it, I'll take it, me over here. So he asked if I was interested. And I said, hell yes.